Good morning. I want to remind you that we have our prayer bowls here, and in so doing, I also want to pray. Um, found out last night that some of you know Lowell and Cheryl Burrier. Her grandson, who I think, what, what was his name, Connor? Yeah, uh, who was 20, early 20s, and was with three of his friends, all about that same age from what I understand, and they were off-roading. And the vehicle they were in flipped. The gas tank blew up and killed all four of them. Yeah. And so that's heavy on our hearts uh, for Lowell, Cheryl particularly. Um, so would you just bow your hearts with me and let's ask the Lord to, to uh, Lord, we pray you'd comfort Cheryl, Lowell, and these other families. These, these unexpected tragedies that that happen. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would comfort Cheryl, that you would strengthen them. I know that they're going to have to walk through some things here now with the family members and others, so please, Lord, guide and direct them as believers in what they're sharing and being there and just being able to really be a shoulder to cry on. Please. So we, we just commit, Lord, them to you in prayer and help us, Lord, just to continue to Remember to pray for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's that. Now, um, I want to also continue to remind you, at, on Saturday mornings, yesterday we had a, we have great prayer meetings. Uh, yesterday we had, I think, 24 of us were there or something like that. So it's 8 to 9. It's called our hour prayer. We've been having this prayer meeting since we started, every week. And I believe that that is the, actually the, the, the engine room for what God's doing when we pray. There's a prayer meeting on Thursday with the seniors. So... Again, I want to invite you to come out to that if, if you can. Also, I send out every Monday a batch of four of the prayer requests that we've gotten. And so far we, this year, we've had about 800 prayer requests that are prayed for at least once a month. When you put a prayer request in here, we pray for it right away, and then it becomes part of a batch of four that I digitize in and send out on Mondays. If you want to be a part of that team, please just send me your, uh, your email, and I'll include you, and then on every Saturday, you'll get a, a prayer request for the prayer requests. We just go through them as they come in, but then also going through them this year. So by the time we're done, uh, those prayer requests, uh, the ones that we got at the beginning of the year, will, will have been prayed for probably 12 times. And then as they come in, however many months, it's about once a month that it happens, right? And then also next Monday, not, not tomorrow, but the next Monday, just to keep on your radar, we're praying for souls. So we meet from 6.30 to 7.30. We pray for the Lord to be moving among us and bringing people to know Jesus Christ. Okay, final thing. On last night, was it last night? No, it was Friday night. We went, Charlotte and I went to see a documentary that's in the theaters, and it will be in there only briefly. It's called The Essential Church. It is, you, you have to see it. I, I'm just going to put that impetus on it. It, was, it is incredibly well done. How many have anybody seen that? Yeah. Incredibly well done. Some, just helping us to understand the government, uh, the church, family, and how all that stuff works biblically, scripturally, very, very informative, very, very helpful. And it's all, it's all coming out of what happened during the pandemic to uh, Grace Community Church, which is, which is uh, John MacArthur's church down in California, but also some churches up in Canada. And what, 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 how to understand how do we do this? What do we do to work through these things where there's mandates and all those kind of things? I'm so thankful. I, I think the Lord, well, he did. He really helped us and guided us 
in us navigating that whole time. It, it's kind of weird. You know, it's like, did, did that really happen? <laughs> it's like, here we are. Nobody, here we are. Did that really ha- It did happen. And the Lord is gracious, has been to us. And so I don't know what's coming down the pike, but I do know this. The devil does not stop coming after God's church. And we are the ones, we, the church needs, it must, is, the, is the last bastion for truth, for standing for what's right, for our co- country, for our culture, for our, na- our, our whole nation. So I've sh- shared about that before, but I just want to, I want to charge you, if I might, go see it. And I'm not sure how long it's going to be out uh, in the theaters, but uh, it's called The Essential Church. We saw it down in, uh, the one, where I know it's playing is in Auburn, the Regal Theater down in Auburn. What is that called? The, the, what, what small is that? Not the super mall anymore. Outlook Collection. What a crazy name for a mall. Just call it the super mall. All right. Stand and let's look at Mark chapter 9. The disciples seeing the kingdom of God is what we want to talk about this morning. So in Mark chapter 9, we're just going through this book of study now. On Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Philippians. Just started that. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death. Here it is. Till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one of the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So now the, the, another letter in our eight-verse eight uh, segment of Psalm 119, responsive reading. I'll read 25 in the odd, you read 26 in the even. This is, the, Psalm 119 is all about the, the Word of God. There, there are maybe one or two verses that don't, don't mention the law or the, ju- or the statute. So here we are. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wonderful works. Remove from me the way of lying. And grant me your law graciously. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. So, Lord, we ask that you would enlarge our hearts now to your word. 
And we run our course through this section this morning. The things that I prepared, break them fresh, Lord. Bless them. Teach us what we do not know. Give us what we do not have. Make us what we are not yet. Transform us by your word, by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning to us concerning seeing the kingdom of God present with power. Lord, we're thankful that we are servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That we, Lord, our allegiance is to Jesus. We bow before you, Lord, asking you now to be gracious and merciful. Make your face to shine upon us. And bless now your word. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. You can be seated. So I always include a lot of scripture, and I know I tend to speed read. So uh, I hope you'll bear with me as I think of that. I, always, I even have on my little front of my page here, slow down. <laughs> it's not just here, though. It's everywhere. That's all, folks. <laughs> so I am happy, really, to send you my notes, and you can get all the scriptures. I, I, I'll jump over some just because of time. And a shout-out to Aaron and to Jocko who are the ones that get stuck with inputting all my scriptures. So give it up for those guys. So as I mentioned, the first half of these studies in Mark, we focused on the gospel. The second half, we're going to be focusing on the disciple. Last week, it was the disciple, the Christ, the cross, and the Christian. And what we looked at were three questions. Who do you say Jesus is? Dear disciple. Are you mindful of the things of God, which are the things of the cross? And then do you desire to follow Jesus? The desire is to follow him. The work that he does in that is the transforming of our lives, sanctifying of our lives, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But the desire is there because we are his disciples. We have been born again by the Spirit of God. The desire to please God is innate in this supernatural thing that happened to us. So that, that study last week is the backdrop now to the beginning of chapter 9. So let's go back a little bit, 834, when he had called his disciples, the people to himself, with his disciples also, so not just the disciples, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what, pro- what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In other words, part of this is a time thing. If you gain the whole world, for how long are you going to have it? Very briefly. It, could do- it also talks material things. If you gain the whole world, how long are you going to have it? Briefly. So what will a man, what will a pro- if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's amazing what we will give in exchange for things that are empty. So the whole of Jesus' commands have present costly implications. Negatively, one must deny himself by decisively saying no to self-idolized living. We must say no to self. It's the only path to spiritual life. He calls to live lives of self-denial, surrender, suffering, and sacrifice. He commands to deny every selfish impulse by deliberately choosing the path of maybe it's suffering, reproach, death even. If we're going to follow him, this is, the, this is what Jesus gave. Here's the instructions. He confronts our 
lives of luxury and ease. He confronts materialism, our, material, our selfishness, our hard-heartedness. We're going to see this as we go through the rest of the gospel. He confronts our personal agendas, our pleasures and liberties. So these are the discipleship lessons that we'll be seeing as we go through the gospel. These final, this is six months now to the cross. That's negatively. Positively, one must take up his cross by decisively saying yes to God's will and God's way. Yes to that. As Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. So verse 38 of chapter 8, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In Matthew chapter 16, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his work. So the whole of Jesus' commands not only have present costly implications, they have future kingdom implications. How I live now is very important as to what happens then. So he goes on to say to his disciples, assuredly I say to you. So he's talking this kingdom, this, this, this second coming. Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Do you see the kingdom of God present with power? I want to give you three things that I've outlined this by. See, seeing the kingdom. First of all, we must see the majesty of Jesus. Would you say amen to that? Amen. He is the king of the kingdom. Secondly, we must see the humility of Jesus in going to the cross for you and for me. That's the kingdom of God. And then finally, seeing the supremacy of Jesus. He will restore all things. He is head over the church. He is supreme over every and anyone else. So seeing the majesty of Jesus, that the king, Jesus, would descend from his throne and would dwell with sinners. That is majestic. That's beyond us even being able to incorporate. He would come to reveal the glory of God to us. So he said in Matthew 16, the same thing. Assured I say to you, there are some standing here who, it says, will not, sh or who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Same, same thought. Matthew gives it a little differently. Luke, I tell you truly, there are some standing here, again, every one of them has this, who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So when I read that, shall not taste death, they see it before they die. And I say to you, the kingdom of God present with power is something we see before death. We must see it before death. But not only that, we see it beyond death. So the kingdom of God present with power before I die and beyond my death. Would you say amen to that? We see it now. To see before death, listen, the presence and power of God revealed in sending Jesus. We see the glory and grace of God revealed in sending Jesus. 
we see the peace of God revealed in sending Jesus, the king, the king of peace. We see the love of God revealed in sending Jesus to redeem us from our sins, to die in our place on the cross. That's the kingdom of God. We see before death, we must see the promise of God in sending Jesus to restore all things to himself. That's the kingdom. Are you looking forward to a future? Before death, these are the things of the kingdom, but also beyond death, we are going to be standing with the redeemed in the very presence of God. We are going to be joining the chorus of the redeemed in worshiping God. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You redeemed us from every tribe and tongue and people. And there's going to be these choruses in heaven and we're going to be there. Would you say amen to that? It's beyond death. We're going to be basking. Listen, basking. And this is in scripture, Ephesians. In the exceeding riches of his grace yet to be revealed. You think, this is just the title page of the book, this life. We're going to be up there 10,000 times, 10,000 years, and he's going to flip the page and say, I got more for you. That's what Ephesians says. In the ages to come, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. And he's going to turn another page. That's the kingdom. That's our king. Listen, to see beyond death, is when we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And this mortal will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. And death will be swallowed up in victory. That's beyond death for those in the kingdom of God. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. You see, the kingdom of God is to see before death, yes, but beyond death. These are the things that are a part of the kingdom of God. We will reign with him as kings and priests forever and ever. So, if we just stopped there this morning, we'd be doing just great. Now, six days, after six days, he takes Peter, James, and John, led them up with a, to, to, on a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no laundry on earth can whiten them. No, no laundry detergent gets it that white. The word transfigured is metamorphosis, to be changed into another form. Not merely a change in outward appearances, but his body was actually physically transformed. I say, that's cool. That's what they saw. It's outshining. In Matthew, he tells us he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. In Luke, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. No, he's praying. We're going to find that they, were, they woke up from their sleep and saw Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. So whenever Jesus went to pray, it seems like they fell asleep. <laughs> he went up to pray, and as he prayed, they're sleeping. As he prayed, 
The appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. He gave them a glimpse of his transcendent glory in that mountain. The dazzling white of his clothing was typical of angels and heavenly beings. The disciples were given a glimpse of Jesus as he will be when he returns visibly in power and glory to put down all of his enemies and to establish his kingdom on earth forever and ever. And everyone said, cool. Not even cool. Yeah. We're on the cool today, okay? Now, Jesus revealed his glory throughout the Old Testament called Theophanies. He revealed himself to Ezekiel with much the same uh, descriptions. He revealed himself to Daniel with much of the same descriptions of this appearance. His waist in, in, in Ezekiel, his waist upward I saw, and as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within. So there's this glistening, fiery being revealed to Ezekiel, and Daniel saw the same. And there were many others in the Old Testament, these incredible appearances, these theophanies throughout the Old Testament. But the most glorious appearance is the incarnation of the Son of God. Those are all amazing. But to think of God, his Son not sparing, sent him to come as a human being. So in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, our King, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is creator God. He is the creator of all things, Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom or is the very heart of God, the bosom. He's the heart of God expressed to us. So no wonder in 1 John, his epistle, he says, that which, you, in the, that which you've seen, which you've handled, which, and he's just, John is reminiscing again about what they were actually experiencing was God himself incarnate, walking with them, eternal life, them walk, and yet veiled in a human body. He wasn't walking around shining with a halo. Up on the mountain, as he's praying, his disciples are sleeping, he's transfigured, he's, met, he, he, he's changed to give the disciples a glimpse of glory. Say, this is the kingdom in power. This is what it's going to be like. There's going to be this glorious, transcendent Jesus and us with him. Jesus revealed himself to John in the book of Revelation. This old apostle that's still on earth. God's not done with him yet. And he has the book of Revelation. It says in Revelation 1, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard it behind me, a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet. Clothed, oh, it's, yeah, I, did, I got it right. Clothed the garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. 
His head and hair were white like wool. And his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass refined in a furnace. And his voice is a sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. What would happen to you in, that pres- in the presence of such a being? Same thing that happened to John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. The disciples were afraid. This, this presence, this glory. But he, and this is beautiful. Beautiful. He would say, do the same for each one of us in our fears. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. You're going to be okay. It's the glory of the kingdom of God. The presence of such a magnificent, majestic king. The same word, this is beautiful also. This same word, metamorphosis, is used in conjunction with the power of the Spirit of God that changes the very nature of our beings. For his glory and from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Nevertheless, it's three, one of those 316 verses. Nevertheless, when he, one turns, Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, are being metamorphosed, transfigured into the same image. We are being made like Jesus. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Son of God will dwell, came and dwelt with us. But listen, the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell in us. To radically change us from the inside out. To change the very nature of who we are into more and being like more and more like Christ. Let me tell you, that's cool. <laughs> We're on that word. So, secondly, seeing the humility of Jesus, that the king would die for sinners, that Jesus would come, would, re, would die to redeem and reconcile us to God. Now, it says there, verse 4, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but Luke does. In Luke chapter 9, and behold, two men were talk with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here you have the glories of this appearance, this glistening, and, and Moses and Elijah are there with him. And what are they talking about? They're talking about his death. Not the glories of the coming kingdom. They're talking about his death. As we looked at last week, there are two comings. This is what he came to accomplish. At Jerusalem is what it says. Now, we would never consider such a hideous death as an accomplishment. Be the furthest thing from our minds. And yet that's exactly what it was. Because of the humility of God. His willingness to give his son. The cross is Jesus' glory. 
in redeeming and reconciling us to God. And he said that when he went to the cross. The hour's come. Glorify me with the same glory which I had with you before the world was. The, the cross of Jesus Christ is the glory of God's humility on display for us. That's the kingdom of God. In Philippians chapter 2, who being the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now it doesn't stop there. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. And given the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee shall, should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise the Lord. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of the reconciled. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of the redeemed. We've been reconciled. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. He reconciled us through the cross, through his blood shed. He reconciled us to God. He redeemed us. He paid the price. Who did that? The king of kings. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make these three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why did he say that? Because he didn't know what to say. You know, it's probably always better if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. <laughs> and he was scared out of his wit. So he, some people handle fears that way. And he's chatter. A cloud came and overshadowed him. So here he is. Let's make three tabernacles. And oh, wait a second, Peter. <laughs> Envelops them. This is my beloved son. Stop talking. Hear him. Hear him. Listen to him. Maybe the other disciples don't listen to Peter. <laughs> Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. So whatever part Moses and Elijah had or will have, Jesus is the preeminent one over all things and all people. He is the preeminent one. And listen, there's nothing like being with only Jesus. They were with only Jesus. All of, there's a whole movement that started Jesus only from this. I have a theological term for that cult. It's baloney. <laughs> Whatever part they had, Jesus is the preeminent. Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, this is much like the beginning of John. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, in him, in him all things are held together. All things consist. He holds it all together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father in him, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, 
whether the things, things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is the preeminent one. Verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Listen, I'll tell you what the, the rising of the dead meant. If there's no resurrection, there would be no meaning to anything they saw, no meaning to anything that they heard if he doesn't rise from the dead. They're wondering, what does that mean? That's what it means. There would be no king. There would be no kingdom. There would be no glory. There would be no dominion. No redemption, no reconciliation, no salvation, no church, no Bible studies, only despair and death. But as Corinthians tells us, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Has become the first fruits of those. This is what it means. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For since by man came death, by man, capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and so in Christ all shall be made alive. Praise the Lord. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, what the king has yet do for his saints. He will return and restore all things to God. That is going to happen. That's the kingdom. He says, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? Then he answered and said, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man? That he must suffer many things and be treated with... In other words, this has to happen first. This is what must happen first. Before the prophecy of Elijah coming. But I say to you, notice, that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, Matthew clears this up a little bit. He says, verse 12 of chapter 17, But I say to you, Elijah has come already. And they did to him what they did, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Notice. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So whether they understood this exactly is up for discussion. The last verse of the Old Testament leaves them anticipating Elijah's return. Elijah had a kind of an interesting no-death experience. He went up in a chariot of fire. Moses had much the same, well, a little different, says that God buried him. And then it tells in Jude that Satan's having this argument about the body of Moses. So Moses and Elijah are two interesting people because God buried Moses. Nobody knows where. Elijah was, never did die. He, he went into a, up in a whirlwind. So this last verse in Malachi is what they're referring to. It has them anticipating this Elijah coming first. Jesus now, now you also remember that when the angel told Zacharias about Elizabeth having this child, that that child, it says in Luke chapter 1, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Talking about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is kind of a type of, in Jesus' first coming. It's very clear. He said, I'm not Elijah. They asked him, Are you, no, I'm not Elijah. So the question they're asking, had Elijah already come? And they missed him? Or was he yet coming? Question, was his appearing on this mountain the fulfillment of that prophecy? 
See, what's going on here? Simply put, Elijah will be the forerunner to Jesus at his second coming. John the Baptist, though, is a type, if you will, of Elijah, the forerunner of Jesus in his first coming. And he was even prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, here's the interesting thing. Had they accepted Jesus, John the Baptist would have been the fulfillment for them of restoring them to God, reconciling them to God. He said, indeed, Elijah is coming and restores all things. There will be some kind of spiritual awakening. And I know there are many people who are praying for God to send revival. And I'm all for it. But whenever Jesus is coming, the second coming, there's going to be some kind of spiritual awakening preceding. Elijah will have a part in that. He may be one of the two witnesses in Revelation. We don't know that. And responding to the preaching of the baptizer, People were lining up when he came, John the Baptist, lining up to repent, to turn to the Lord. There was, in a sense, a revival that took place with him. So this restoration at Jesus' second coming is multifaceted. The disciples prior to his ascension said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Peter in his preaching said that repent because times refreshing will come through your repentance. There'll be the restoration of all things through repentance. Paul speaks about the coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom. He said, then comes the end, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. Then, he come, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and, all, and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that we've destroyed is death. Now, when all these things are made so... When all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be also subject to him who puts all things under him, that God may be all in all. There's going to be this whole restoration that takes place. When Elijah and Jesus is Elijah coming to precede Jesus' second coming. The book of Revelation says that Jesus is going to judge all nations. He's going to rule the nations. He's going to heal the nations. He's going to make all things new. So this restoration will be taking place. Now, I want to close with these thoughts. This event, as you can well imagine, that happened to you, had a profound impact on these three men. I mean, it changed their lives. That's what's going on all the time when you're with Jesus. Peter writes about it. And in Peter's second epistle, you have the commentary on the Mount of Transfiguration. So I, I encourage you, read it. His precious readers, those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus, he's writing to believers. And Peter was a passionate man. And so he goes up in this mountain, and man, were his passions stirred like crazy. He writes about it in his second epistle. And you would expect from Peter a passionate epistle, and it's exactly that. He's reminding them of what constantly reminded him. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. When that happened, he realized there is a second coming, that Jesus will be coming a second time. Now, he didn't quite understand that. Until after the ascension, and then he started thinking. But 
Now, on the other side of all of that, he realized what happened in that mountain, it's going to happen in the earth. It's going to happen in God's plan. You start thinking along those lines, and all of a sudden, everything takes on a whole other perspective. That there's a coming kingdom, a coming king, who will set up his kingdom on earth, and we will rule and reign with him. And the basis of our ruling and reign with him is based on our faithfulness in this life to the things God's given to us. There's no such thing in one sense of secular when it comes to how we live our lives. Everything is sacred and dedicated to God for his purposes, for the things that he's wanting to do. Not my will, but his will be done. So he's reminding them, and this event, the transfiguration, is the basis for this whole, his whole epistle, I believe. He said in 2 Peter 1, as his divine powers gives all things that pertain to life and godliness, how? Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Do you know Jesus? It should radically change your life. He's the king of kings. He's the eternal son of God who became a man, and he is a man in glory, our great high priest. Do you know him? You see, it changes everything. He's coming again to establish his king. It's only by Jesus that we have obtained like precious faith, his supremacy. It's only by Jesus that we have been given the righteousness of God. It's only by Jesus that grace and peace have been multiplied to us. It's only by Jesus that we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. No one else. It's only by Jesus that we partake of the divine nature. It's only by Jesus that we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. So Peter, in this epistle, knowing he's about to die, put off his tent. And knowing that these things are already established, that they knew these things, he said, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to remind you. And his epistles are just reminders, reminders and reminders. These things are yours and abound. These things in the, in the Bible, the things written and given to us, that we ne be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.9, for you who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and here it is, for, an, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to remind you. He wants to be careful to ensure that they always remember the Mount of Transfiguration for him. There's that place where he realized, wow, that's what he was talking about. That's what's going to be happening. So here's the deal. Look at verse, uh, verse Peter, verse one, chapter 116. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitness of his majesty. We saw him. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You get it? You were there? He started saying, I was there. I saw it. And that's what's coming. That's what's coming. 
Yay! It's incredible. They saw it for a moment, and they were half asleep when they did. Let me tell you, we are going to be far from half asleep when it happens. Are you seeing the kingdom? Do you see Jesus in his majesty and his humility and his supremacy? Are you living your life? Am I living my life in light of the second coming of my Savior, my Redeemer, my King? Oh, God, help me. Help us. You see, remember that God has spoken. He has spoken. The prophetic word confirmed is what Peter said. We have the prophetic word confirmed. God has spoken, confirmed. Jesus is coming, confirmed. Why Jesus is coming for the kingdom of God? That's confirmed. When Jesus comes, there's going to be these rewards according to our works. That's confirmed. And all we can do is bow before our king and say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Break my heart for what breaks yours. My desire is to follow after you. My desire is to bow before you as my king. My allegiance is to you and you alone. But Lord, you know a lot of things get in the way. So my desire, but then Jesus said, let him take up, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. My desire is there, Lord. Now I bow before you in complete surrender and say, I'm yours. Do through my life what you want to do through my life. You see, remember the way you live now has present costly implications. It's worth any cost necessary to deny sinful self confirmed. It's worth any cost necessary to endure suffering and taking up the cross. Confirmed. It's worth any cost necessary to be diligent, as Peter says, to be diligent to live my life to please God. Confirmed. Remember that the way you live now has future kingdom implications. So the question, three questions in closing. Are you seeing the majesty of Jesus? See, this is what it's going to take. This is the kingdom. Are you seeing the majesty of Jesus? Are you seeing the humility of Jesus? See, it's a living relationship. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This living relationship where his majesty takes over. His humility comes under. His supremacy goes all over. Are you seeing the supremacy of Jesus? Can I have the worship team come out? Would you stand with me as I pray to close our time in the word? So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for your love for us, your goodness to us. And, Lord, we know that it's only by your Holy Spirit that we're going to be able to really get anything as far as understanding and growth. So, again, my prayer for myself, for us, fill us 
with your Holy Spirit anew afresh this morning as we walk out these doors. I pray the things of your, on your heart are what would be on our hearts. That your word would have that place in our lives, time-wise, to spend with you and hear from you and receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. That, Lord, our prayer lives and spending time with you, filling the bowls, as it were, within, with you, you love it when we pray. You love it when we spend time with you. And so, Lord, draw us to yourself, and I pray and ask in Jesus' name that you bind the evil one who would like to rob and kill and destroy. Even now, we stand together and say, Lord, rebuke all the ways the devil wants to confuse us, condemn us, discourage us, give us get us just un under weights. You came and said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we pray, Lord, we ask that, just to rest in you. Let's sing.